We're continuing our series through the book of Nehemiah, which tells the story of God's people rebuilding the city of God. Nehemiah is all about building a new Jerusalem, which, as we see in the book of Revelation, is precisely what the church is called to be doing today. We are called to build a new Jerusalem, and so we're turning to the book of Nehemiah in order to learn how we are to go about doing that. Last week, Nehemiah traveled to Jerusalem, assessed the damage, and then recruited the people in the city to help him rebuild. The people respond to his call, saying, let us rise up and build. And this week in chapter 3, the people begin building. Chapter 3 is 32 verses long. We, we only read the first two verses, and that's simply because chapter 3 is a bit monotonous. Um, it reads like something that ought to have been placed in the appendix of the book of Nehemiah. It's a catalog of names and places. There are 41 different groups mentioned, and each group is taking ownership of a particular portion of the wall. If you want to visualize Jerusalem at this time, you can, there's, a, there's an image in your bulletin. Um, but the people are depicted as a unified and well-organized team working together to achieve a common goal. So, of course, chapter 3 is recording something very important, something very beautiful. But rather than exploring every single detail, rather than looking at each of the 41 groups, we're going to zoom out and look at the bigger picture. What's going on here in chapter 3, and, and what... What lessons can we draw from chapter 3 to guide us as we build up the city of God in our own generation? If you've been around Christians for a while, you've probably heard someone refer to Jerusalem as the holy city. Or perhaps you've heard someone refer to the holy land, referring to the nation of Israel. Actually, the Bible rarely refers to Jerusalem as a holy city. In fact, it's not until the period of exile that Jerusalem is referred to as a holy city. The prophets Isaiah and Joel talk about it in this way, but they, they are prophesying about Nehemiah's day. So it's really not until Nehemiah that the city of Jerusalem begins to be referred to as a holy city. Why does that matter? Well, the shift in language tells us something very important about this period in the history of God's people. Apparently, something fundamental about the city of Jerusalem is changing in the book of Nehemiah. And today we will see what that is. Verse 1, then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of, of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. Back in chapter 2, the people say, let us rise up and build. And now, in chapter 3, the people are rising up and they are building. And it all begins with the high priest. Now, several of the commentaries I've been using make note of the humility and the servant leadership of the high priest. He didn't consider himself too high and mighty for some manual labor. But I don't think that's what Nehemiah wants us to take from this. After all, the, the task of a priest was manual labor. They had to build fires. And they had to manage livestock. And they had to chop up the sacrifices. It required stamina, especially as they're wandering through the desert. And so that's why they had to be between 25 and 50 years old. 
So the, the point here in Nehemiah is not that the high priest was humble enough to work with his hands. The point is that the building of the wall was understood to be a holy project. The building of the wall was holy work. The building of the wall was work fitting for the priesthood. And that, that is not a small thing. For some reason, the priests thought that rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem was, to a certain degree, worth neglecting their responsibilities in the temple. You see, the priests were not just rebuilding the wall. Verse 1 tells us that they consecrated the wall. To consecrate is to declare something holy. To consecrate is to set something apart for a holy purpose. In Genesis 2, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. And the word there is consecrate. Then throughout the book of Exodus, the people are consecrated. The priests are consecrated. Mount Sinai is consecrated. Sacrifices are consecrated. The tabernacle is consecrated. Every piece of furniture in the tabernacle is consecrated. The Lord says to Moses, you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. Every person, place, or thing that is set apart for a holy purpose must first be consecrated. Side note, this is partly why we practice infant baptism. The church is the temple and the holy city of God. So when our children are born and brought into the temple and the holy city, it's right and fitting that we should set them apart for a holy purpose. It's right and fitting that we would consecrate them on their way in. And baptism is that consecration. When we are baptized, we are anointed and set apart for a holy purpose. We are made priests. Now, we can grow up and prove ourselves unfaithful to that calling, to the calling for which we were consecrated, but that doesn't change the fact that we truly have been set apart for that purpose. Now, back to that question from earlier. It's not until the days of Nehemiah that Jerusalem begins to be referred to as holy. So what is the fundamental thing about the city of Jerusalem that is changing in the book of Nehemiah? Well, apparently, Nehemiah and the priests and all the other people who were building this wall understood that the holiness of God was in some way expanding. The dwelling place of God was expanding. The entire city is getting the temple treatment. The only reason to consecrate a wall was to set it apart for a holy purpose. The only reason to consecrate the wall was to make the city a fitting dwelling place for God. This this means that even before Jesus, even before that veil in the temple was torn, the presence of God was already breaking out. The presence of God was breaking out of the temple and the entire city was becoming a holy place. As we will see um, in, in a few weeks, Nehemiah chapter 12 The priests and the Levites consecrate themselves, and then they consecrate the people, and then they consecrate the walls and the gates. And then they appoint two great choirs to stand and sing upon the walls. And for Nehemiah's original audience, this would have been utterly astonishing. 
You see, prior to Nehemiah, these choirs were stationed within the temple. If you wanted to hear the music of Zion, you had to go all the way into the temple. But now these choirs are stationed around the wall. And so the entire city of Jerusalem is surrounded by choirs of singing Levites, surrounded with songs of praise. Not only that, but in chapter 13, the Levites are actually commanded to guard the gates of the city. The tribe of Israelites who had been appointed, who had been set apart and consecrated to serve in the temple, are now appointed to serve upon the walls. The entire city is becoming a temple. And this is the beginning of a trajectory that's ultimately fulfilled in Christ and the church. We see the ultimate fulfillment of this in the book of Revelation. We're given a vision of an enormous holy city, the new Jerusalem and bride of Christ, and there is no temple in that city because the city is the temple. So in both Nehemiah and Revelation, every citizen of the holy city is depicted as a priest. Every citizen is consecrated and doing holy work within the dwelling place of God. And that's what I think the rest of Nehemiah chapter 3 is about. Chapter 3 is about the doctrine of vocation, also known as the priesthood of all believers. Nehemiah's catalog of names and places teaches us that every vocation is holy insofar as it builds up the city of God. Chapter 3 features priests and perfumers, goldsmiths, merchants, designers, Persian officials. We see multiple generations, fathers, sons, and daughters, all working together. The people come from all over the region, Gibeon and Jericho and Mizpah and so on. And so there are different regions represented. There are different ethnicities represented. There are different social classes represented. There are different vocations represented. But all of these different people were knit together for a common, unified purpose, building up the city of God. It's not just Nehemiah building up the city. It's not just the high priest building up the city. It is every worshiper of God building up the city of God. So, you don't have to be the king's cupbearer in order to make a difference in the kingdom. You don't have to become a pastor. You don't even have to work for a nonprofit. You can be a perfumer. You can be a merchant. You can be a goldsmith. You can be, an, you can be a homemaker. You can be an engineer. You can be a banker. You can be a teacher. You can be a garbage collector. You can be a child. The entire city of God is consecrated and holy, which means that each and every vocation is consecrated and holy, provided, of course, that our vocations are not dishonoring to the Lord. This doctrine of vocation answers a question that we all ought to be asking. How can I serve God? What can I contribute to the building up of the city of God? You see, from, from ancient Israel to the Middle Ages to the 21st century, we have been tempted to believe that this doctrine of vocation really only applies to the religious leaders. The pastors are doing the holy work. 
Everyone else just has a job. Or perhaps we might say that a pastor has a job whereas everyone else has a real job. But either way, we, we are making a distinction that tends to denigrate the holiness of what the people of God are doing out in the world. This is what John Calvin had to say about it. God has appointed to all their particular duties in different spheres of life. And on the basis of this knowledge, the magistrate will execute his office with greater pleasure. The father of a family will confine himself to his duty with more satisfaction, and all in their respective spheres of life will bear and surmount the inconveniences, cares, disappointments, and anxieties which befall them when they shall be persuaded that every individual has his burden laid upon him by God. Hence also will arise peculiar consolation, since there will be no employment so inferior as not to appear truly respectable and be deemed highly important in the sight of God. Brothers and sisters, this mindset will change your life. Not to mention the world. God cares about your Sunday, but He cares about your Monday through Saturday too. Every moment of this coming week, whether you are, are working or resting, eating or sleeping, creating a spreadsheet or changing a diaper, every moment ought to be understood as a, as a faithful drop in a bucket of faithfulness that over the course of millennia is amounting to the coming of the kingdom of God. Every moment can be lived to His glory. Every moment is holy. And this, this applies to me as a pastor just as much as it applies to you. By, by my calculations, there will be about 2 billion sermons preached in 2022. That's just one year. And then you count, you count up 2,000 years worth of sermons, you start to get a feel for the relative insignificance of this particular sermon. Let's be honest. Unless you podcast this, you probably will not remember this sermon by next Sunday. I'll be lucky if you're thinking about it at lunch today. But that, that doesn't make it worthless or meaningless. Because I trust that the Lord is using this tiny offering to accomplish something bigger. And the only difference there is that the church has done a good job of teaching me that what I do, although small, is ultimately significant. But the church has not done a good job of teaching you that. Like this sermon, history will probably not remember the diaper you changed this afternoon. History will probably not remember the client you serve on Tuesday morning. History will probably not remember the neighbor you share a meal with on Wednesday night. But God will. And God is faithful to use all of those things. He sees everything. And He cares about everything. Even the simple and mundane things that you don't care about that you don't want to do, they can be done with joy and thanksgiving and a sense of eternal purpose. In fact, that's how God wants you to do those things. You are a baptized person. 
You have been consecrated for service in the city of God. You are currently in full-time ministry. You don't have to quit your job. You don't have to go live in the mountains. God is right here in the ordinary stuff of life. After a long day of, of unseen and uncelebrated labor, we come together at a dinner table and we break bread and we drink wine and we laugh and we cry and we pray for one another and then we do the dishes and God is pleased. God is pleased in all of that. These ordinary moments are faithful drops in a bucket of faithfulness that over the course of millennia amount to the coming of the kingdom of God. You don't have to be somebody else. You don't have to achieve something spectacular in the eyes of the world. If you do your work faithfully, if you love the people that God puts in front of you, you are doing what God considers significant. Your ordinary Monday through Saturday, lived by faith, is building the new Jerusalem. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we long to see the day when all of the earth is consecrated. All of the earth is holy, and your city descends in all her fullness. You dwell with us forever. Jesus, you are the king who sends us. You are the leader who has recruited us. You are the high priest who consecrates us. We invite you to continue leading us by your light. Holy Spirit, strengthen our hands for this work and give each of us fresh insight into how you are using us to accomplish your purposes. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.